Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking about spiritual minimalism, which is a practice of minimalism that challenges us to create space in our minds that we can build more fulfilling lifestyles. And to lead this conversation, I am joined by bestselling author and internationally celebrated meditation teacher, Light Watkins, who shares his teachings and meditation and insights from his latest book, Travel Light, Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life, which releases tomorrow, July 18th. Light defines spiritual minimalism as the inside-out path to getting rid of inner clutter and living a more fulfilled life. And today he is on a mission to spread inspiration through his meditation retreats, his books, his podcast, and his inspiring speaking events. Light is motivated to help others do more, give more, and be more. And in our discussion, he speaks on the power of spiritual minimalism to help us challenge our outdated beliefs, clarify our inner voices, and regulate our energies so that we can live more authentically. In Light's book, Travel Light, he shares seven principles of spiritual minimalism using stories and examples from his own experiences to motivate you to cultivate a clutter-free approach to how you make decisions, communicate, express love, and show up for yourself and others. Be inspired to adopt a spiritual minimalist practice that you can create the space to let go more easily, express more gratitude, and develop inner peace. Light says, quote, spiritual minimalism is about creating space on the insides that you can be more of yourself on the outside. And before I share our discussion, I want to note that there is a little bit of background noise, but hopefully you are so zoning into this conversation that you don't even notice. Luckily, some of this is some birds chirping, which may just add to our conversation in ways. So here it is, my conversation with Light Watkins. I have to tell you that I loved reading your book, Travel Light. I resonated with so many of your words, just the principles in general. Five minutes ago, I did a little meditation through the Waking Up app. And honestly, after reading your book, you've really helped me explore my own meditation practice in a different way. I was always telling people, gosh, I'm really not good at this. But now I'm realizing that mind wandering is a good thing. That's a part of the process. And you tell us that we should swim through that process, swim through those thoughts. And we'll get into that in our discussion. But I loved that because it just reminded me, okay, don't worry. These thoughts are a good thing. Whatever. At the end of the day, you're going to be able to rest better. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to read the book too. That's That means a lot. No, absolutely. And you take an inside out approach to minimalism, which mm-hmm. is brilliant. It's about focusing on the root of the issues internally before we go out in the world and we start removing the excess stuff. And we'll get into that area. But I want to start off by telling you that we have a few things in common outside of our mutual friend uh, who we found out about this past weekend. I was coming home from a run and I get a text message saying, I'm having brunch with your guest on Monday light. I was like, oh, what a such a small world. And I was going to share that we we both modeled overseas, or well, we both modeled in different cities around the world. Uh, I know you had a modeling career in New York mm-hmm. for seven years, you did, and mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. in Asia. We both adopted a minimalist lifestyle in 2018. No way. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. I, I was July of it, 2018. You mm-hmm. were just before that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we both are on a mission to spread inspiration. 
And I thought Beautiful. that was really neat. So when your team reached out, I was like, yes, I cannot wait for this discussion. Speaking with a fellow minimalist and just hearing about your story. But uh, just to share a short background for our listeners, from my research, I learned that you grew up in Alabama. Again, you had a modeling career in the States. Uh, you were a yoga teacher at one point, And then you became passionate about becoming a meditation teacher. So I'm curious, what experiences inspired you to pursue meditation and, and learn how to teach others? And how did you expand this globally? Yeah, so, wow, that's so cool that you were a model. So as you may remember, I don't know, but I'll just speak to my own experience. I was never like a supermodel, first of all, right? I was a working model. And what that means is you could theoretically work maybe three days a month, you know, almost once a week, and you can pay all your bills depending on how expensive your lifestyle is. And that was my situation. I was living in New York City and I was working, you know, a handful of times a month. And um, so you have a lot of downtime. And in the downtime, I would work out because you had to like, you know, look the part as a model. And I don't know if you ever heard of the gym called Equinox. You ever hear yes. of Equinox? So it's a pretty popular gym now, kind of a higher end experience. I used to go to the very first Equinox before it became this nationwide or even worldwide high-end chain. And it was on 76th in Amsterdam in New York City in Manhattan. And um, I remember very specifically one night doing shoulder presses on the second floor of Equinox. And there was that it happened to face that machine faced the exercise room, the group exercise room. And there were these probably 20 women who look like you, these really beautiful women standing outside <laughs> who are all glowing. And they had these rolled up mats under their arms and they were barefoot. And so I was in my like I was in my early 20s. So most of my decisions at that point in my life were driven by my hormones. And um and they started filing into the room. And so my hormones said, go in that, to that room and see what's happening and be a part of that experience, whatever it is. And that's how I ended up in my very first yoga class. So I'm in the yoga class and I don't, I could care less about yoga. I didn't even know what yoga was, honestly. And, and, and it wasn't a very, it wasn't a great experience for me because I was never really that flexible. I would just lift and lift and lift, but I would never stretch. So I could I couldn't even I was nowhere close to touching my toes and for some reason the teacher gave me a lot of attention probably because I was the only guy in the class and but I would look around and I would see all these beautiful women and I'd go oh my god I got to come here again cuz I'm the only guy in the class this is great this is like a hack to meeting meeting healthy women quickly so I started going back to more yoga classes and then eventually I was going for the yoga because it felt so good to stretch and open my body in that way. And then through yoga, this is back in the mid 90s, they would talk about meditation. And, and then I, would, I became friends with a lot of my yoga teachers. And back then, yoga teachers were like serious meditators. So I would go to their meditation circles at their houses. But my experiences were difficult. I was, again, I wasn't that flexible. So we're sitting on the floor and they're like, you know, straighten your back, shoulders back, chin up, very classic sort of monastic approach to meditation. And I would just be sitting there writhing in pain, waiting for the time to finish, not feeling like anything was happening. And that was going on for two or three years. And then I decided to graduate myself from modeling and become a full-time yoga teacher. 
And to do that, I was going to move to Los Angeles, which, you know, was sort of like the Mecca for yoga in the States and also for vegetarianism. I was becoming vegetarian at the time. I'm not vegetarian anymore, but I was vegetarian for a very long time, probably 12 or 15 years or something like that. So I was just starting to discover that. So my whole life was becoming centered around spirituality, yoga, the esoteric practices. And so meditation was one of those experiences that I really, I really found myself very curious about. So when I got to LA and became a yoga teacher full time, it was through that experience that I was introduced to the man who taught me what's called Vedic meditation, which is a 20 minute twice a day meditation that uses a mantra as a way of settling your mind. And without realizing it, that became a, a more minimalist approach to meditation where you didn't have to sit with your back straight. You didn't have to cross your legs. You didn't have to focus on anything. You didn't have to control your mind. You just sat there with your back supported and your arms and your hands at ease with a very passive attitude. And within days of learning this style of meditation, I went from waiting for the time to finish to not wanting the time to finish. Mm. And it was so blissful and just everything that I thought meditation was supposed to be, but I never experienced it in that way up until that point in my life. And I was, I was very inspired by that experience to want to know more and to ultimately help other people have that experience. So I knew within about 10 minutes of meeting my meditation teacher that this is what I was destined to do in life. Wow. Did your meditation teacher use the word minimalism? No one used that word at that time. This is, we're talking 2003. Yes. Now, so I only look back now in hindsight and realize, oh, okay, that was a yes. more minimalist approach to the meditation. But, you know, people will ask, when did you become a minimalist? When did you start practicing mm-hmm. minimalism? And I, I attribute learning how to meditate as the real turning point in my trajectory towards minimalism. And so giving everything away and moving into a backpack and, you know, having the nomadic experience really was a side effect of me being a consistent daily meditator because it was through that experience that I was able to clear away the internal beliefs that something like that wasn't possible. And I, I feel like you have, to, you have to clear that away in order to take the leap of faith and access whatever potential lies within you. And, mm-hmm. it, and again, it doesn't mean my whole approach with, with travel light and spiritual minimalism is not about It's not about getting rid of stuff on the outside. It's about clearing out the internal stuff as a means of doing the thing that you feel most aligned with doing, which is usually something that is going to take you out of your comfort zone. It's going to stretch you. It's going to make you uncomfortable. And that's one of the reasons why we don't don't take that leap because it's not something that we know how it's going to turn out. And humans are just wired towards safety, being safe. And what's comfortable appears to be safer, even if it may have some abusive aspects to it. But if we kind of know, what do they say? Better the devil, you know, if we kind of know how it goes, then we feel safer in that bad situation than we do in a potential situation that hasn't been stress tested yet, Mm because we don't know how that's going to turn out. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
I was going to ask you the question, is it, was it easier for you to let go of your stuff because you had this meditation experience? And it seems like, yes, you, you started on the inside, all of the work that you did internally. Uh, but I'm curious, what was the moment that you realized, oh, wow, like I want to be a minimalist. I want to let go of all my stuff. What sparked you to make that huge lifestyle change? I mean, I, I read and even in your book, you list all the items that are in your bag. It's, it's fantastic. I think you own 30 items and you live at various Airbnbs. It's amazing. Like what inspired you to sell your stuff? You lived in a two bedroom apartment in Venice at one point. You got rid of your apartment and you became this digital nomad. Like, What, what were those experiences? I'm so curious. Yeah, so in 2016, the Minimalists released their documentary, and then that got streamed on Netflix. So I saw that. I remember seeing the Ram Dass documentary as well. I can't remember the name of it, but it was the one that came out around 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who had been who had been traveling. He moved out of his apartment, and in fact, it was, it was the same apartment where I learned meditation in 2003. So we became really good friends. And, uh, and he moved out of his apartment and he started living from a duffel bag and, you know, a carry-on bag, just like minimal stuff. And I think it was the combination of all of those things that in, incited this desire within me to explore a more minimal, minimalist existence. Now, the other thing that I don't talk about a lot, and I, don't, I didn't write about this, but I have to acknowledge that this also played a role was I had just gotten out of a relationship in 2016 slash 2017. And my apartment that I was living in, in Santa Monica, which was a 10 minute walk from the beach and all of that wonderful stuff. It just didn't feel the same once that breakup occurred because we were together for a couple of years. I'm sure some people can relate to that experience. And I felt like I just had to get out of there. Like it was too much associated with this other thing. And so I kind of use that as a catalyst for saying, okay, well, let me try something different. What I've been doing clearly isn't working. I'm in my mid 40s. You know, I have this aspiration to have a family perhaps one day and have a partner and all of that. And I've been I've been nesting, I've been acquiring stuff and that's not working. And this is probably my last chance to to throw caution to the wind, to get rid of everything because you can't and I've been very open about this. It's not easy to do this if you have a relationship or if you have a family. You can't, I mean, you you can do whatever you want, but it's just not seen as, as pragmatic to get rid of everything and move your kid and your partner into a backpack and start traveling the world like that. It's way more expensive when you're doing it as a family to live in Airbnbs, to find a place that's big enough and to travel, you know, but when you're on your own, it's a lot more affordable to travel light. And so the combination of all of those things, breakup, friend doing it, seeing uh, or exposure to other people practicing minimalist lifestyle. Ram Dass, I think, has a really good way of articulating the sort of inside out approach to happiness, you know, finding fulfillment within. And so I've been incubating this idea for probably a year before I decided to take the leap. And then I started getting into these little spats with my landlord. He was a relatively nice guy, but he and I started getting into these little spats over what I consider to be like really little things. And he's making them a lot bigger than they actually are. And I thought, okay, one of the signs that a situation is becoming irrelevant for you is you're you're experiencing a lot more tension and friction 
in that experience. And that doesn't mean that you have to leave the thing. It just means you have to relate to it differently. So I use that as an opportunity to also say, okay, well, what happens if I just don't have this apartment anymore? And then final piece of the puzzle is I had a book coming out, which was a book on meditation called Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. And I had a bunch of tour dates for that book in collaboration with a festival called Wanderlust, where they were going to fly me around the country to give talks and presentations about meditation. So I thought, okay, all these things are kind of coming to a head and this will be a great opportunity just to kick off this new lifestyle. So let me just take advantage of this wave. And so that's what I did. I gave my 30 day notice to the landlord and that's when it became real because after that, there was no going back. He's out looking for a new tenant. So my objective at that point was just to try to get rid of everything as quickly as possible and move into this this carry on bag, which is how it started. Wow. It's nice that you had that outlet to experiment with minimalism. I always say that minimalism is a lifestyle template. It's an opportunity to start fresh. I've spoken to women in the past who it's like their life after divorce and how they started becoming minimalists or adopting these principles of minimalism, adopting this way of life and how much it's helped them. It's a refresh on life. And it's amazing. I, I read that you started with a carry-on and then you started going even smaller and, and just making everything, putting everything in a backpack. It's amazing. It's incredible to me. I mean, and again, I like to remind our listeners that everyone's lifestyle is going to look a little bit different. You are a true digital nomad. And maybe you will have more stuff one day. I don't know. But it's nice that you had those experiences to help you kind of feel out this lifestyle and feel what was true to you and really focus inward and figure out what is what truly makes you happy because it clearly wasn't the stuff. And it's nice that you're able to recognize, hey, my landlord is causing all this tension. Like, this is not making me happy. This place doesn't make me happy. I don't feel what I used to feel. So I need to make some changes. So I need to let go. It's amazing that you're able to let go. Yeah, that's 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 one of the reasons why I credit meditation. It's easier to hold on to things if you don't have that internal awareness. But mm -hmm. because the meditation helped to cultivate more and more awareness, I was able to capture the seedlings of this new path as it was starting to formulate maybe a year and a half before it actually happened. Mm -hmm. So when it finally was coming to a head, it's like, okay, I, it's not like surprising. And in fact, over that year, I was still leaving and traveling quite a bit for work. I was teaching meditation all over the world at that point. And I was challenging myself to see how little I could live with on the road. So I'd be on the road for two or three weeks at a time. And I would just take what I thought I needed to use in my carry-on bag. And I worked out that 22 inches was the largest carry-on bag you could have that they would allow you to bring onto an airplane and, and put in the overhead compartment. So that's, that's why I got the size that I got. And what I realized after moving out and into my carry-on bag full-time was that I had to, way too much stuff. That's what's so ironic about it. Mm -hmm. I brought a bunch of stuff thinking that, you know, I'm going to miss everything that I left behind or got rid of. And I need like two pairs, three pairs of shoes for every occasion and all this. And then I realized, you know what? I just don't need that much stuff. I'm still only wearing two or three different outfits on a daily basis so I scaled down to a 40 liter day pack or sorry, backpack, a Patagonia 40 liter backpack. And that was an interesting challenge because now I'm carrying everything I have on my shoulder. So I literally feel the weight of everything that I have. And then I said, you know, this is way too heavy to be carrying this around. And then something, something happened that 
changed the trajectory once again. I learned how to hand wash my clothes. I just went on YouTube and searched, you know, a few videos and I started experimenting with it. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually not, it doesn't take that long. And it does a very thorough job of cleaning the clothes on a temporary basis, right? Meaning I could hand wash my clothes, you know, for a week, maybe two weeks. And then if I got around a washer and dryer, then I could just wash, dry everything and, and do like a deeper clean, right? So I started doing that and I realized I could scale this thing down to like a day pack, not even just a regular backpack, but a day pack. And so I did that a few years ago and that's where we are now. And now I'm trying to get down to a tote bag. I'm kidding. I'm not getting it out no. to a tote bag. <laughs> but the point is you don't need as much stuff as you think you need. And and at some point, if you really want to adopt this kind of minimalist light, lifestyle, meaning getting rid of stuff, the way you do it, the, the most efficient way to do it is just to reduce the amount of, of room you have to store things. And that's why I'm not an advocate for storage rooms, because mm-hmm. that's usually the first thing people do is say, oh, I want to be a minimalist. And they go get this big ass storage room and yeah. they start putting all this junk in there that they don't need, that they're never going to use again, that they're going to forget that they even have within a month. And now you're paying three, four, five thousand dollars a year to store up a bunch of stuff that you don't even remember that you had. And that's the trouble. A lot of people buy things to store things they don't need because they're seeing these beautiful laid out minimalist, minimalist homes. It's like, yeah, but you have to do the decluttering process first. But actually that starts internally. And I love that you point that out. You know, what are the things that you need in your life? What does your lifestyle look like? It's, it's almost a big questionnaire. You have to ask yourself all these questions and work through all of that. And meditation is a great way to work through all that. So I'm, I'm curious, how did your experience becoming a minimalist or how has minimalism amplified or changed your meditation practice or teachings? Hmm. That's interesting. Good question. Well, I do everything that I need to do from a backpack, from my day pack. So when I teach meditation trainings, I start off with a puja ceremony. And for people who've been to India or have been to Indian temples or whatever, you know, in America, you probably have seen ceremonies where there's rice and there's candles and fire and there's the pandit or the priest or whoever is putting stuff in the fire. And so I carry my puja kit in my backpack, in my day pack. And that's the biggest item that I have by far. And that's really the only original item, one of the only original items that I still have from the first day I went nomadic five plus years ago. So I'm also podcasting. You know, I've got my podcast mic here and I've got my blazer for when I go and do keynotes and I've got stuff to wear on dates and I've got stuff to exercise in. And so it, it forces you to have to really think about what, not just what do you need, but what can also be repurposed for other things as well. And you just have to be intentional about it, you know? And so the meditation itself is something I've taught myself to be able to do anywhere at any time because you have to be able to do it anywhere. I have a meditation shawl, for instance, that I that I carry with me. That's another one of the original items. And I use that shawl for multiple purposes. And I write about this in Travel Light. You can use the shawl as a blanket, as back support when you're flying, as an eye mask. So I try not to carry things like that, you know, that are extra. 
I just try to see how many ways can I use the items that I already have in order to do all of the things that I'm wanting to do. And this is a process of elimination that takes, you know, it could take a long time to figure out. But once you figure it out, it's also quite liberating because then you just don't need all the stuff that people think they need in order to do the things that they ultimately want to do. And it will help you make decisions about the stuff that you already own that is excess, right? You can say- Yeah, and if you don't have room, if you don't have room for it, then you you don't have any choice about it. You have to figure it out. And that's mm-hmm. the, that's the what I call the freedom of choicelessness, which is the seventh principle of spiritual minimalism. Again, that's the quickest way to become a minimalist is just to reduce the amount of room you have because do you want to be carrying all that stuff around with you? Is that helping you in- is that serving your mission, whatever your mission is? And that's another thing you want to do in the earlier days is work out for yourself. Okay, what's it really important to me in life? What's my life mission? Or what's the mission for my for this season of my life? Is mm-hmm. it to be an inspiration? Is it to build a company? Is it to become healthy so I can help other people be healthy? Right. And then once you are clear about your mission, then you start to reverse engineer that. And you can see what serves that and what doesn't serve that. So you can literally go through every room of your house and ask yourself, is this couch serving me and my mission? So if my mission is to become mentally healthy and the couch is where I have my best meditations, then the answer is yes. So I'm not going to get rid of the couch. But -hmm. then I may look at the television. Is this television serving my mission? And the answer is no. Then then maybe that's something you want to consider moving out of your life. If it's distracting you, if you're sitting on the couch you can't help but pick up the remote control and start flipping through television channels mm-hmm. and you're not doing your meditation practice, then that's not helping you. But if you give yourself the freedom of choicelessness, which is principle number, number seven, and you sit on the couch and there's nothing else to do but meditate, now it's, serv- it's in service to your mission. And it doesn't mean you can never watch television again. Maybe you watch television whenever you go to someone else's house. So now you you have a du- dual purpose, connecting with a friend over a show or whatever on television. And that's the only time, just like how some people, they remove social media from their phone. And the only time they can look at social media is when they go onto their computer, which they may only be on the computer during work hours, but when they go home at night, they don't have that. So there are all kinds of ways to give yourself the freedom of choicelessness. Yeah. Make the hard things more difficult. I think you, you mentioned in either a podcast or in your book that you had moved to Mexico city to Mm -hmm. get a level of focus that you weren't getting in Los Angeles at the time. And I have to add that I, in my old apartment, I had a family room with a big TV, never used the TV ever. And mm-hmm. since adopting this lifestyle, I realized, oh, now that I moved into a new apartment, I'm not, I'm getting rid of the TV, donating the TV. And I set up my living room so that it's set up for the lifestyle I want to live. I have a stand up desk. I have a studio set up. That's what I want. That's where I want to put my time. So it's being intentional with the items that you own so that you'll spend your time more intentionally. Also, I, I listened to a podcast where you were talking to your friend Drew. It's your friend Drew's podcast. And you mentioned that if we all step back and ask what's most important to me in life, people would be so much more intentional and the world would be such a happier place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that yeah. was so great. Yeah. And that's, that's, again, that's a part of trying to work out what your mission is. I, I was going to say the word purpose, but I think saying it like that is puts a lot of pressure on people because it's we see purpose as something that gets assigned to us. Mm-hmm. And mission is something that we accept for ourselves. Like my mission 
for today, maybe to, I just got back into town from Los Angeles and I've been away for a few weeks. So my mission is just to unpack and clean my place and get it all organized. But that's not like my purpose. My purpose is to leave the world more inspired. So me unpacking and getting my place clean and organized is in service to the purpose, which is to is to have these conversations with you and make sure that my schedule is uh, accommodating, you know, my the other things that I need to do in order to be on purpose, such as working out, such as meditating, such as getting my steps in, such as drinking plenty of water and tea and connecting with friends and stuff like that. And and one of the things that I write about in the book is that if you're not clear about your purpose, that's very normal. It's very common. It doesn't mean you don't have a purpose. The way you can find your purpose in a quick and efficient way, and I'm using that word subjectively, quick, quick could be 10 years, but that's, you know, otherwise it may have taken you 20 years. So that's still faster than what would have happened without following this particular hack is to follow your curiosity. Follow your curiosity. Just do the things that you feel naturally curious about without shaming yourself in the process and without falling victim to FOPO, fear of other people's opinions, because <laughs> people are not going to uh, you, usually if there's something that you're genuinely curious about, it's not going to be aligned with what everybody else thinks you should be spending your time uh, doing. And just a quick example from my previous book, Knowing Where to Look, is I was teaching meditation in Manhattan years ago. And then one night, late at night, after leaving one of my sessions, I was heading back to my Airbnb. This is before I became nomadic. So I'm just, you know, I'm traveling there and then I'm going to head back home. And something told me to go to Barnes & Noble, which is at the north end of Union Square, and to get a Rubik's Cube and learn how to solve it. And so that's what I did, because at that point, I become used to listening to my inner guidance as that's a byproduct of daily meditation. And so I went and got the last Rubik's Cube. It was like 10 minutes before they closed. And I went home and I went online and I started trying to learn how to solve it. And my friend called me up. I, it's one of my friends who I talk to all the time. We talk about marketing and business and stuff like that. And. I, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And he says, what, what do you mean? I said, I just got a Rubik's Cube from Barnes & Noble, and I'm trying to now figure out how to solve it. He goes, what are you, why are you spending your time? He said, really, why are you wasting your time doing that when you should be putting time into figuring out how to get more people to learn how to meditate and market yourself and all of this? And I said, well, it's just something I feel like I have to do. So... After learning how to solve it, which took me about three days to do, it was, which is, and it's really a remarkable thing if you ever learn, because I thought you had to be a genius to solve a Rubik's Cube, but actually it's just a, an algorithm. It's a sequence that you memorize. And if you ever find yourself in New York City on the subway and you have a Rubik's Cube and you know how to solve it and you solve it on the subway, everybody's watching and people were like completely blown away to see <laughs> someone solve a Rubik's Cube. It's like the most, it's the ultimate awesome. party trick. Yeah. So anyways, while I was going through that process, something occurred to me. I had an insight. The way you solve a Rubik's Cube is very similar to the way meditation works. So you solve a Rubik's Cube in rows. You start with the bottom row and then the middle row and then the top row. And then all the sides will start to become solved. And the way meditation works is you solve this sort of foundational problem, which would be like the bottom row of the Rubik's Cube, which is the, the problem of rest. 
So meditation can help supplement the mediocre rest that most people are getting when they're sleeping. And once the rest comes back online, then all the other long-term survival functions start to come back online, such as digestion, reproduction, immunity, hormonal balancing. So those are kind of like the sides of Q. And this was a very fascinating and unexpected correlation for me personally as a meditation teacher. And I was so intrigued by it that I decided to make a video comparing Rubik's Cube, the solving of Rubik's Cube, to the benefits of meditation. And I do this video, this is like in 2007, and then I post it on YouTube, which was a relatively new platform at the time, and it went viral. Mm. (laughs) It was my first viral video, and I wasn't expecting that to happen. And I had to like in the I had to learn iMovie and I had to set up like a point and shoot camera to record the whole thing. And I was in the flight line to the Santa Monica airport in my apartment. And so there are all these issues that I had to figure out. So it wasn't easy to do. It was very challenging. But once I did it and it went viral, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And guess what ended up happening? I ended up teaching a lot more people meditation mm-hmm. as a result. So it's kind of like, you know, I talk about the heart voice and how it's always guiding you towards your purpose. And if you listen to it, you will arrive at your purpose in a more adventurous way that you probably could not have anticipated for yourself. Because the objective that my friend was talking about, which is you need to figure out how to teach more people meditation, would have been the more conventional route. Oh, you need to do more Google ads. Oh, you need to Mm. do more, you know, posts on social media or whatever. And My heart voice was also guiding me through the root of the Rubik's Cube, which is a way more interesting, creative, and intriguing path than the pragmatic path. And now I have, you know, this sort of legacy uh, video that's out there that's continuing to inspire people because the way you know you're operating on your purpose is that it's in service to something bigger than you. And you only really get there by listening to your heart. So that's one of the things that I encourage people to do today is to, you know, if you're if you're at a crossroads, if you if it's really clear that you should do something analytical, then do it do it that way. But if you're at a crossroads, or if there's this this desire to explore something that doesn't make a lot of sense, then that's your curiosity saying to move in that direction, and that's how your purpose is going to find you. Mm-hmm. I love that you talk about following your curiosity because we talk about that quite a bit on the podcast. I interviewed the minimalist TK Coleman mm. and the episode is titled Follow Your Curiosity. It's all about that, especially how minimalism gives us the space to follow our curiosity even more so mm-hmm. than ever. It gives us that sense of awareness around ourselves. It gives us that space internally. And it sounds like from from your story that you recommend people follow that in order to adopt a spiritual minimalist practice. Is, is that correct? Yes. I guess my overall point is it doesn't have to be what's, what you expect it to be because your curiosity is going to have you doing some things that may be completely random mm-hmm. compared to my curiosity or someone else's curiosity. And by doing that, by following your curiosity, you're going to be able to do more with less. I don't know how that configuration is going to happen, but I know the end result is you're going to be able to do more with less. Just like in my example, I was able to teach more people meditation with one video, but creating that video wasn't easy. And that's, I think, where we get stuck is we think that being in the flow means that life is supposed to feel easier than it actually does. 
And that's not how it goes. It's just mm-hmm. that you're more excited about the possibilities. And, the, and that excitement will inspire you to keep moving through it, even though there are some difficulties in that process. You said that everything is either adding to your mission or taking away from it. So I think that's mm-hmm. helpful. So if our listeners are wanting to adopt this spiritual minimalist practice, they should think about those questions. What do I need? What don't I need? That is going to be helpful. And even even the question, what lights me up inside? Mm. And, and, and making choices based on that, you know? And it's not about, the habit itself is not going to light you up, you know? Mm-hmm. For instance, going to the gym is hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get up, find clothes, drive, park, go in, buy a membership, get sold, yeah. and then not know what you're doing, and then have to figure it all out and be intimidated and feel shameful because your body doesn't look however you think it should look to be in the gym, and then having to lift those heavy-ass weights and then do it over and over and over again, no days off. Like That's hard, mm-hmm. but yeah. being in the best shape of your life, that feels aligned. You know, The idea of being in the best shape of my life, or even just being in good shape, healthy shape, being functionally strong. That resonates. That that makes me feel expansive. So when we talk about curiosity, we may think about it in that term. Like, am I curious about what life would be like if I was in better shape, if I was functionally strong? Just like me with the Rubik's Cube. The idea of solving the cube was not that sexy. Having to go online, work out this algorithm, play around with it versus the idea of being able to solve something that a lot of people were intimidated by, including myself. So finding that solution, that, that was what I was curious about. And, and I had to go through all those steps in order to arrive at that point. And so we just need to understand that challenges are part of the process. They're part of the path. They're not something that, that you should avoid, or that's a sign that it's not meant to be. That's a part of it. Keep your Awareness trained on that aspect of it, the which which makes you feel expansive, which is the payoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you also mentioned Carl Jung's quote: "What you resist persists." Mm-hmm. I love that because it's all about the idea that, gosh, if you don't even try, you'll never get there, and you have to work through. It. It's going to be hard work, as you said. It's going to be hard. I mean, for you, it was much easier because you worked from the inside out. You describe spiritual minimalism as the inside-out path removing inner clutter from our lives that we can live more fulfilling lives. And I love that. It's so true. I also recently just spoke with a decluttering expert, Tracy McCubbin, and she talks about how the reasons why we have these emotional clutter blocks, but also emotional clutter magnets, the things that not only block us from letting go, but the things that cause us to buy things we don't need because we're filling an emotional void. It's fascinating Mm -hmm. stuff. And that's why I love the fact that you're like, oh, this is an inside out approach to minimalism. But I'm curious what your definition is of a spiritual minimalist. What does it mean to be a spiritual minimalist? What does it mean to get there? Spiritual minimalism is the recognition that the fulfillment that you're after is not external. It's not from an external achievement. It's something that you can cultivate internally. So what what are the mechanisms for cultivating fulfillment inside? The same ones we've been talking about for thousands of years, meditation, stillness, gratitude, going within. A lot of the Stoics write about finding fulfillment inside as opposed to outside. 
And so that requires practices. Exercise is one of them, Move, movement. It doesn't have to necessarily be a seated, eyes closed meditation, mindfulness experience. It could be mindful walking. I talk about walking in the book. It could be a more mindful way of exercising. I talk about using affirmations instead of boring old numbers when you're counting off your reps as a way of staying in the moment, present, engaged, and inspired. And all of these are habits that need to be cultivated. And so when people start a habit like exercise, coming off the couch and exercising regularly, and I give like a minimalist exercise program using just your body weight that you can do wherever you are, hotel rooms, Airbnbs, at home, on vacation, wherever you are, because it needs to be consistent, as well as an exercise or a minimalist approach to meditation. All of those are relatively easy to start. But the reason why they're hard to continue Mm -hmm. is because we don't realize that while we're starting a new habit, we're having to also break down an old habit. And the old habit that makes meditation harder is the habit of distracting ourselves. It's the habit of picking up the phone and scrolling for no reason. Mm -hmm. It's the habit of turning on the television and flipping the channels, not really even sure that we want to be watching TV, but we're looking for something more interesting than what we're currently experiencing, right? The habit of gratitude is really easy to sit down think about 10 things you're grateful for, but we're having to break the old habit of feeling sorry for ourselves and seeing ourselves as a victim and seeing our situation as cursed as opposed to blessed. And so those old habits are so deeply entrenched in our psyche that when we start the new habit, they're going to ramp up and try to get our attention away from this new habit so that they can continue getting fed with our, uh, we feed it with our thoughts, but more so than that, every thought we have has a corresponding chemical component. So if an old habit of distress has been experienced for 10 years, that distress also comes with some adrenaline. It comes with some cortisol. It comes with some of those other stress chemicals. And the body gets used to these stress chemicals. So breaking that old habit is a biochemical, is creating a biochemical effect that can make it very challenging. And we just have to understand that this is how it goes with any new habit. And so that way we don't have to personalize it. We can just understand that, okay, it's going to require consistency to get the body exposed to the biochemicals related to gratitude, related to stillness, related to mindfulness, which you know are dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, all the wonderful bliss chemicals. And once you expose your body to those chemicals enough times, your body's going to look for them. And it'll be easier and easier to sit and make time for your meditation or to sit and make time for your morning pages or your gratitude journal or whatever it is that you're, you're wanting to cultivate. You actually shared a story on your podcast, The Late Watkins Show, about how you were writing, I think it was Bliss 4, your second book, and you were a month out from having to (laughs) submit it and you were procrastinating. And so you wrote a check to your friend, an amount of like $4,000 to hold you accountable to finish that book. I thought that was so funny. And uh, I'm hoping you can share a little bit more about that story because I actually interviewed this guy named Nir Eyal. He's a great author. He wrote a book called Indistractable and he talks about price packs and that's a price pack. So what he did is he said, you know, if he he wanted to go to the gym more and so he would put a $100 bill on his calendar, his physical calendar and say, if I don't burn 
I have to burn this. So burn or be burned. <laughs> so funny. I love that. I love that. Yeah. It's, I guess it's taking from the spirit of that. So I was writing actually my first book, The Inner Gym, and um, it was a self-published book. So I didn't even have a hard deadline. I was giving myself deadlines. And the whole process was just dragging on and on and on. I was like three years into it. And I was like, okay, I, I, I'm so tired. I'm sick and tired of thinking about this and it's not getting done. And I knew that I was lying to myself. I kept telling myself, okay, I'm going to finish it next week. Okay, I'm going to finish it next month. And the next month will come around. Okay, one more week. You know, I wasn't being honest with myself. I was thinking that I had this amount of potential that I had never previously tapped into before. And I know that the solution when in those kinds of situations is to raise the stakes. I have to put some skin in the game. I have to put something more on the line. So I wrote that check to my friend who was Drew. Drew is my friend who I wrote the check to, Drew Puroid, who has that podcast that I was on. And and I post-dated it to the day that I said that I wanted to finish the manuscript. And I had a contract drawn up between Drew and I. And I made him sign it. And he signed it saying basically that if I didn't finish my manuscript, no matter what excuse I came up with, he was going to take that check, cash it, and use it for anything that had nothing to do with me personally. So once I did that, then I got really honest with myself about how much time I had to commit to this. And all kinds of time freed up in my schedule. And I indeed finished it, I think, a week early, just in case anything oh, good. happened. Because <laughs> I was no, there was no way I was going to lose that $4,000. And that was an amount that was well beyond what I could afford to spend. Like I had it in my account, but I had to pay my rent and other bills and I didn't have $4,000 to lose. So I was very intentional about choosing an amount that got my full attention and then eliminating the possibility of being in, having an excuse as a reason why I didn't finish it. So yeah, I, I highly recommend that approach to anyone who wants to take their goal more seriously because if you put something on the line that you you can't afford to lose i read something recently that reminds me of this it says your value basically is the amount that you're willing to give up in order to achieve something that is in alignment with you know whatever your integrity is so that could be your time it could be money it could be attention or whatever you value the most and so that was that was what I valued the most was finishing that thing. And I was willing to do anything in order to, to finish it. Wow. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, I was just basically talking to myself <laughs> and I said, as we do. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, as we do a lot. And I said to myself, I was like, gosh, I always figure it out. Any situation that happens, I'm like, don't worry, I'll figure it out. I always figure it in the end. So when I stress, I'm like, you know, you're going to figure it out. So I, I said to myself yesterday, I was like, Oh, like if I want to do X, why aren't I spending time doing this? I need to allot X number of hours to this thing, but I'm not doing it. So set something like that. Set some type of pact, an effort pack. And I think near I'll call it an effort pack. That way I actually get it done. Right. Because, right. you know, unless the fire is lit under you, you know, you can it's just like when you do work. People are like, oh, well, you can take three hours to do that. Or you can tell yourself, I got to get this done in an hour or you're going to take five hours, right? So it's that self-discipline that this lifestyle has really, really given me. But to move the conversation over, in your book, Travel Light, you share seven principles of spiritual minimalism to help us live a more fulfilling lifestyle. And I want to share them with our listeners. The first is prioritize and cultivate inner happiness. Number two, make decisions from the heart. 
Three, no throwaway moments. Four, give what you want. Five, follow curiosity, as we talked about. Six, find comfort in discomfort. And seven, the freedom of choicelessness, which happens to be my favorite principle because I can relate Mm. to that one the most. Can you describe two of these principles using examples from your own life? Sure. So cultivating the voice of inner guidance is something that you do from meditation practice. So again, we all have inner guidance. We all have that voice of intuition or what some people refer to as the still small voice. And I attribute that voice with inspiring me or nudging me in the direction of going into yoga and then ultimately going into meditation. So I was joking around about my hormones, but really it was my inner guidance that was saying that that's where you should be right now. And here's the thing, your inner guidance will use whatever other tools or resources it needs to, such as hormones or such as your intellect or such as a shiny object or something that's glittery on the outside in order to get you to where you need to be in order to be exposed to whatever experience is going to help you take the next step along your path. So my inner guidance knew as long as I get into that yoga class, then he's going to be more intrigued by this practice and then explore other things. And then later in the book, I tell a story about having a girlfriend. Now I'm like the big yoga guy. I'm telling everybody about yoga and I have a girlfriend who I also introduced to yoga. And then she starts inviting me to her yoga class. This is all in New York City. And, you know, navigating New York City at certain times of day, it's just, it's just like an exercise in futility. And one of those commutes is going from the west side of Manhattan to the east side of Manhattan during rush hour. And her yoga class that she was just in love with was starting at like 6 p.m. on a Tuesday. And she was like, you have to come. And I was living on the west side. And I was just like, oh, my God, I don't really want to go to this class. And I was coming up with all these excuses. And I love my class already. Why do I have to go to this class? And she just kept encouraging me to come. Mm -hmm. And... So on the surface, it looks like, okay, well, your inner guidance is telling you to do your thing and let her do her thing. So we could definitely make that argument. But there are layers to inner guidance as well. And there was another layer to my inner guidance saying, well, if you go to her class, then you'll have this shared experience. She'll feel better about your relationship because you're willing to bend on things that aren't really that important, such as not being in rush hour traffic. So my my that layer of my inner guidance was telling me to go to see her class, even though on a on a more superficial layer I wasn't really that interested in doing it. Right, so there are levels to inner guidance. Mm-hmm. So I go to her class, and that's where I connected with her teacher, who indeed gave a great experience. And then three or four years later, I'm in Los Angeles. And I reconnect with that teacher who I only saw that one time in her class. And he was the person that ended up introducing me to my meditation teacher a few months after that. So if I hadn't gone to the class, then I would not have, I would not have, well, who's to say if it would have still happened or not, but it just all fit together. It's like Legos. And and when you look at your path, once you find yourself on your conscious path and you reverse engineer it, usually you see, oh, okay. All the dots were connecting and it was pretty obvious, right? That's kind of like principles one and two. Cultivate the voice. I was doing that already through meditation and then making your most important decisions from your heart, Mm -hmm. which for me, the most important thing was 
building this relationship with this person. And so I decided that on a heart level, it was better to go to the stupid class than it was to keep coming up with excuses. And then another example from another principle, we'll call it the principle of, which one? Finding comfort and discomfort. So when I started teaching yoga in Los Angeles, after meeting that yoga, after reconnecting with that yoga teacher, he sort of mentored me into teaching yoga. And I could barely touch my toes still. I, was, I would bend over and I'd be about five inches off the ground from touching my toes. But I wanted to be a yoga teacher. And so I went to this yoga teacher training, which to me was just the next step. And I had this secret. I couldn't touch my toes. I wasn't That's flexible like at all. I can't yeah. either. <laughs> and it was, but, but I'm in a yoga teacher training. That's like, that's like going to dental school and you're missing all your front teeth. You know, yeah. it's like you're afraid to smile the whole time. Right. <laughs> so nobody mentioned the fact that I was so inflexible and I graduated and what I lacked in flexibility, I made up for in hustle and effort. And I was driving all over city, all over Los Angeles, just substituting anyone's class I could and teaching whatever I could. And I, ended up building up this really beautiful practice, teaching about 10 classes a week with pretty you know, well-attended classes. And what I realized later was by allowing myself to be uncomfortable with whatever I thought my ability should have been, I developed this unique skill set, and you could even call it a, a unique advantage, of having to be able to teach without demonstrating poses because I couldn't really demonstrate the pose that I was that I was teaching so I had to learn how to articulate it and I was also able to speak to other people who weren't that flexible which turned out to be most of the people who were coming to yoga classes most people aren't contortionists so I became a very popular teacher because I was one of the few teachers who could relate to those people and to speak to their experience and I remember one day going out on a hike with the yoga teacher who I met and he said something that just kind of stopped me in my tracks, literally. He said, well, how does it feel to be one of the most popular yoga teachers in Los Angeles who could barely touch their own toes? <laughs> and when he said that, I was like, oh, I was like cringing, you know, and I was trying to come up with the perfect spiritual answer to respond to his, his comment. And I couldn't think of anything. And then finally, after this awkward silence, he broke, he broke the silence and he said, you know, a wise man once told me, you don't have to beat Michael Jordan in a game of basketball in order to coach him to a championship. Mm. And that helped to put things into perspective for me. I was like, okay, that's what I'm doing. I'm helping people. I'm helping other people accommodate whatever their life experience is. And I don't have to be the one that's able to kiss my own ass in order to do that. So, yeah, so that, that those are the things that I'm suggesting in the book, Travel Light, a lot of people hear the name and they think, oh, it's about getting rid of all my stuff and living in a backpack. No, it's a lifestyle book. And it's really about clearing out the internal clutter, the internal baggage, the stuff that keeps us stuck, outdated beliefs, toxic relationships, soul-sucking jobs, things that are holding you back from your own potential. And once you can clear that away, you'll find that it's a lot easier to step into your mission and your purpose of what you're truly here to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of those stories you just shared, you could pack a few of those principles to those stories, you know, when, mm -hmm. even about your girlfriend going to that class, you, you talk about, there's no throwaway moments. You made that That's connection right. and it was helpful later on 
you found comfort and discomfort. Sometimes I challenged myself, especially all through COVID, I challenged myself to run outside every day, even though it was freezing cold because there was no gym access and I'm a runner and I like to stay fit. And like you, I like to get my 10,000 steps in every day and listen to audiobooks. And so that's important. So sometimes, and every time I escape my comfort zone, I tell this to my listeners all the time, you gain so much more. It's incredible. The feeling isn't so much fun in in the first moments, but then once you go through it and you get to the other side, you're like, wow, like this was so fulfilling. So as someone who's worked with people across varying industries, helping them become self-sufficient with meditation, because you talk about that, what would you say to someone who doesn't feel like they can meditate or is reluctant to continue? Feels like, oh, I just can't do this. Usually you have that experience when you're doing too much in meditation. And it's completely understandable. You're wearing yourself out mentally, possibly even physically. So I would say to adopt more of the principles from the minimalist approach to meditation, which I outline in the book, Travel Light. And just to give you a a brief synopsis, it's sit comfortably. Don't focus on anything. Don't witness anything. Don't let go of anything. Don't burn incense. Don't use candles. Don't use spa music. Just be. Just practice being. And being... Simply put, it's the cessation of doing. And so, again, we have to recognize there's two habits. There are two things that are happening. You're cultivating the new habit and you're breaking down the old habit. And a lot of that inner friction could also be a result of the old habit of doing that is still trying to get your attention. And and like you said earlier, what you resist persists. So one of the other principles of the minimalist approach to meditation is to not resist anything. Don't resist your your mind being too busy. Don't resist your body itching. If you have an itch, scratch it. Don't resist you falling asleep. If you start falling asleep or nodding off, just let yourself fall asleep. And in that way, you'll make the practice a lot more enjoyable. And when it's enjoyable, you don't have to force yourself to do it. You just want to do it. Mm, very well said. You have a TED Talk it's titled Debunking the Five Most Common Meditation Myths. I sent it to over 10 of my friends, FYI. (laughs) And one of the myths is, is I am a bad meditator if I can't quiet my mind. I love that. That is a misconception, which was new to me. I didn't realize that that was a misconception. So I'm glad that I listened to it and read your book. And you share a story and this story is so good. So I'm going to share a story. So you're going to want to listen to this after I'm speaking to our listeners of a client of yours who worked with you and She's like, you know what? This isn't working for me. And then she mm-hmm. sends me an email like a mm-hmm. year later saying, oh my goodness, this practice actually really is working for me. And she shared the story of how she had an argument with her husband at the time. And her reaction was much more calm than it would have been in the past. And her husband's like, wow, you know, this is a new side of you. And she realized <laughs> in that moment, wow, I am calming my mind. I thought that was super fascinating. So originally she defined success in meditation as keeping a clear mind the whole time you're sitting there meditating when really, as you say, it's swimming through your thoughts, it's working through them. That's a part of the process. And you actually argue that with evidence to support that we actually become more restful at the end of the day. We'll have a more restful sleep at the end of the day if we allow our mind to wander, which I found fascinating. And the third piece I found fascinating is that you said that you went into meditation 
with kind of a calm mind. There weren't specific things that you needed to work through mentally. Most people think, oh, I don't need to meditate. I don't need to meditate. I'm fine. But then no, like you can be totally happy, have an amazing childhood, have all these experiences, but the meditation practice is still important to you. Think about it. We're all out in the same world, this extremely noisy world. So we we need this practice. Yeah, I mean, in that regard, and I've heard that many times as a meditation teacher, oh, I'm already relaxed, I'm already calm, you know, things like that. But what the meditation has done for me is it's given me a stronger connection to my intuition. And that's something that even if you're a calm person, you still may not be that connected to your intuition. Mm-hmm. And the way you know you're connected to your intuition is that you're, you're, you're more willing to do the things that feel aligned to you, but that other people may not agree with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't realize how much we stop ourselves from pursuing certain things because of what other people think. And if you th- just think about that right now as a thought experiment, right? What are the things that you've always envisioned for yourself, but you haven't pursued? You haven't even started pursuing them, right? Some people out there may be thinking, okay, I've always envisioned myself being a singer, or I've always envisioned myself being a professor. But then there's this idea of going back to school and getting a degree, or going on America's Got Talent, right? Or taking lessons to some extent, or going and joining a theater group or whatever your thing is, but you haven't done it. And you may be telling yourself, oh, I haven't done it because I have bills and I have responsibilities and I have to take care of my family. And But really, if you look, if you unpack that, you don't want to put yourself in a position where your friends, your family, your wife, your husband, your kids are going to look at you and go, you're being irresponsible right now. So it's really a fear of their opinions because it was just you. And if we define success as doing the thing that makes you feel most aligned in life, you probably would pursue that thing because everybody else would be doing it. But because everybody else isn't doing it, and it's really few and far in between when people are following their true, true purpose and path, then anyone new who is considering doing something like that, it's a very scary proposition to leave behind the security of the familiar and take a leap of faith into the realm of the unknown. And there's all kinds of trivialization and teasing and serious conversation that comes from that. I'm reminded of the Howard Schultz example. You know, Howard Schultz is the person who founded Starbucks Coffee. And long story short, he had gone over to Italy back in, I think, the 80s or maybe even the 70s. And he had discovered for himself this coffee scene and how people were just congregating over a cup of coffee, which is not something people in America were doing. And he just came He came back and he spent his money acquiring this, this coffee bean manufacturer who had a couple of tables out front that people would come and, you know, serious connoisseurs of coffee would come and, and purchase some coffee beans and maybe enjoy a cup in the front at one of those tables. And he saw that expanding into something that could be a cultural phenomenon, but the place wasn't making that much money. And he ended up, his wife ended up getting pregnant and his father-in-law said, Hey, Howard, why don't we go out on a, on a walk? (laughs) And he had a heart to heart with Howard saying, look, you know, this whole coffee thing that you're losing money on, that's not it. You know, you're going to be a father now. You have to be more responsible. You know, it's a very serious conversation. 
And he went back to his wife who was pregnant and he told her what her dad had said. And he said, you know, maybe it's time to, to throw in the towel on this coffee thing and, and do something a little bit more reliable since we're going to be parents. And to her credit, she said, no, no, I believe in you and we're going to keep doing this. You're so passionate about this. I know that, you know, you can make this thing work. And so he stuck with it. And, you know, you can make the argument that if he hadn't, there would be no Starbucks. There would be no Coffee Bean or any of the other competitors that came after Starbucks. But it's really about not letting the opinions of others dissuade you from doing the thing that feels most aligned to your heart. And, you know, we all have that that vision. We all have that dream. The only question is to what, how, how seriously are we taking it? Mm-hmm. I love how meditation helps us face ourselves <laughs> and work through everything that we've learned to date and actually hear our inner voice and follow that path. It's also nice to keep people around you that keep you inspired and motivated too, as this example yeah. is. That's so, so important. People who believe in you. There will always be people who won't and who will never understand your path. And with but they'll practice, they'll take all the credit once you're successful. They'll exactly. come back and say, Oh, I, I believed in you the whole time. I it's, knew that it was gonna happen. <laughs> exactly. It just lights a fire under you. And I think that's the best part. Speaking of fire, to close our conversation today, I have a couple rapid fire questions for you. Hmm. What has living with less stuff taught you about yourself? I've just learned that I don't need as much to be happy, to be fulfilled. I I, I realize how much fulfillment that I've been fortunate enough to cultivate inside. And that gives me the ability to be more present to the things that I do have. And then you learn something really interesting. You know, a lot of times we're afraid to let go of things because it's sentimental to us, right? But meanwhile, the things that are happening right now aren't sentimental because we're so focused on whatever happened in the past. But if you give yourself that freedom of present moment awareness, what you start to realize is that everything is sentimental. This conversation we're having right now is sentimental. And the next moment that I'm going to have is going to be sentimental. And so it's a lot easier to allow things to let go and be used by other people if you start to appreciate the sentimental aspect of each present moment. No throwaway moments. No throwaway moments. <laughs> what is one daily practice that our listeners can adopt today uh, to keep on track with spiritual minimalism? Okay. So the, the assuming that, you know, starting a meditation practice is going to take a little bit of effort. There's something even easier, which is just gratitude, just being grateful for whatever is happening right now. And if you continue to be grateful for whatever's happening, that will keep you anchored in that present moment. And it's from the present moment that you're going to be able to hear your inner inner guidance a lot easier and take that next step a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. I love that. Every day you share a dose of inspiration through your newsletter to your subscribers of your website. So we'll talk about that later. Now, so can you leave our listeners with a daily dose of wisdom? Sure. I will I will share the one that I sent out today just oh, to perfect. give you an idea. They're all very short, pithy. Okay, so this one is called Different Choices Often. And it says, our adult life is largely the byproduct of every choice we've made up until now. What we chose to eat, which jobs we chose to work, who we chose to partner with, how we chose to spend our free time, where we chose to live, which opportunities we chose to go after, and so on. 
And this means if you don't love where you are right now, all you have to do is decide where you want to be and then start making different choices often. Mm. And within about a year, you can be in a completely different place. So every day I send out one of these doses of inspiration to tens of thousands of subscribers. And it's just a way to kind of get your mind right when you wake up in the morning and have something targeted that you can focus on or, or be intentional about, which today's intention is just choices. What choices am I making? And are these the choices that are leading to the life that I ultimately want to create for myself? Mm, that is so helpful. I would love to wake up to a daily dose every day. So this is this very smart idea. That's great. It's very motivating. Uh, my, my co-host and I, we, we talk about everything you just said every day. Mm. And we, it's those motivators. We need that daily dose of inspiration. It's so important. A lot of us, we work by ourselves or work in, we don't have a lot of community around us. So I see a great value in that. So thank you so much for today. This is such a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. And I'm excited for our listeners to check out your book, Travel Light, and also learn more about you. You do a lot. You've got, this is your fourth book. You have a podcast. You have online courses. You have a movement called the Shine Movement, which I wanted to mention. It's a global movement and sober social event series. I think it's in LA, New York, and London. Uh, you have speaking events. And of course, you have this newsletter. But um, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on all the socials at Light Watkins and then lightwatkins.com is where you can sign up for that daily dose and get information about the online course and the websites and all that stuff and the podcast and all that stuff. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time. And uh, next time I'm in Los Angeles, I'll definitely give you a shout. Thank you, Kelly. It was okay. awesome. All right. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening. That was my conversation with Light Watkins, best-selling author, speaker, and podcaster who is recognized as one of the number one meditation teachers in the world. And if you enjoyed his lessons today, I highly recommend you read his book, Travel Light, Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life, which releases tomorrow, Tuesday, July 18th. And you can find a quick link to this book in the show notes. I had such a great time speaking with Light, and I can honestly say that the seven principles of spiritual minimalism that he details in his book have really, really enhanced my meditation practice. While I find that my thoughts continue to wander, I'm learning that this is part of the process. And as Light mentioned, allowing ourselves to swim through our thoughts will make us more restful at the end of the day. I also wanted to note that in Light's TED Talk, which I will include in the show notes, he shares how the practice of meditation has anti-aging benefits for our brains. So meditation can also slow down our biological age in ways. For me, I found that meditating has helped me become more at peace with my thoughts and it's given me the space to follow my inner voice. And to close, as always, if you enjoyed our discussion today, please let us know by sending us a DM on Instagram or Facebook at Millennial Minimalist. Or if you haven't already, please kindly rate us a kind review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your beautiful words are what keep this podcast moving forward. So thanks again for listening, everyone, and I'll speak with you next week. Bye-bye.